Lester, you're going to spill beer on the couch. So what? It's just a couch. This is a $4,000 sofa upholstered in Italian silk. This is not just a couch. It's just a couch! This isn't life. This is just stuff. And it's become more important to you than living. Well, honey, that's just nuts. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. What a roller coaster of a week. My Twitter feed, and I'm sure yours, has been dominated by those lovable young upstarts, the squad. Don't you hate that phrase? Yeah, I don't know how that caught on. It's easy to forget now because it happened so long ago, you know, a whole five or six days ago, that they were first being attacked by the Democratic establishment. Right. So I guess it was last week that Pelosi gave an interview with Maureen Dowd in the New York Times where, you know, she talked in between talking about her vineyard in Napa Valley and hanging out with Bono. She admonished, you know, she admonished these four members of her own caucus being, of course, Ilan Omar, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, and, you know, she was very patronizing about them. She said, you know, they have their little following or whatever, but it's four votes, that's all it is. There were also reports of that closed-door meeting where she was admonishing the party in general, but I would say AOC specifically well, yeah. did not tweet about <laughs> And remember, the, the incident that instigated the whole thing was the fact that uh, several of these members went to the border and saw the inhumane conditions in these facilities and then refused to vote for an appropriations bill, which Pelosi and the Democrats largely supported in the House, which uh, because they said, we're not going to vote to fund these facilities. We don't trust the Trump administration to administer this money in a way that's humane. So this was the crime, right, is being is feeling moral outrage at the despicable conditions in these uh, in these facilities. And shortly after the call for unity, of course, the party unified. Well, what with is that with that House Democrats tweet right. about well, how the... keep her name out of your mouth? I mean, where do we even begin with that? Uh, it's it's pretty unprecedented for the official Twitter account, like an official mouthpiece of the Democratic Party, uh, to attack a a staff member of one of their own caucus members. Did you um, read that article in HuffPost this week, Nancy Pelosi has lost control? Where yeah, they... I thought that was very good. Zach Carter's been doing mm. some really good stuff over there. The thesis of it being that much of the Democratic establishment is really being run by the New York Democratic Party, which of course is the, the slimiest and most corrupt of all Democratic that, That's, that's right. And you know, I, I, love that, uh, I love that point. I think it's a great point because one of the best rebuttals to the sort of vote blue no matter what, stop complaining, the Republican Party is, that's the only real source of trouble. Democrats have to make compromises. Just stop complaining and then eventually as a result of you withdrawing all your opposition will elect more Democrats and things will be better. The New York political machine is the best rebuttal to that, and just New York politics in general, the best rebuttal that you can imagine. Because as Zach Carter pointed out in that article, here you have a state that is essentially like a unitary, like it's a one-party system, right? Mm -hmm. Democrats have control everywhere. They have super majorities. It's a state with notoriously high levels of inequality, right? Where, you know, the, the workers who make up most of the city's population are crowded onto these awful, you know, under-maintained subways that stop all the time. Anyone who's taken uh, transit in New York City knows what I'm talking about. Uh, and then right above that, you got these glistening towers, these obelisks uh, to, you know, yeah. uh, multinational capital. <laughs> Meanwhile, you have a notoriously racist police force. You have all of these things. You know, you have political rampant political corruption. You have some of the most egregious infractions against just 
basic small d democracy. Like if you're a challenger, just even getting on the ballot is reportedly very difficult in many There's cases. There's currently that left-wing woman who... Tiffany Caban. Yeah. yeah There's it, this recount going exactly, on. Exactly, yeah. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the slimiest thing ever. I mean, she won the vote and they're just pulling out every, every trick they can to try to make her lose by a dozen votes or whatever. It's extraordinary. It, it's great that bipartisanship is alive and well. I mean, voter suppression is, is a bipartisan <laughs> issue. And I think... You know, in these times, that's that's such a beautiful thing. Nice that nice that uh, the two parties can come together. But no, I mean, New York State exhibits all of the worst tendencies that, according to the official script, these things should not be. This should not be the case in a place where you have you know democratic control. But this is absolutely, uh, you know, Andrew Cuomo, the governor, had this thing that he had to be. Was if it wasn't for Cynthia Nixon shaming him out of it, you know, he had this kind of de facto caucus where, you know, there was democratic control, but it basically allowed him to pass like Republican budgets, Mm -hmm. you know, and he had to be shamed into dissolving it. And it was almost exactly a year ago that Ocasio-Cortez defeated not only a powerful New York Democrat supported by not just Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and, and various powerful Democrats out of the state, but virtually the whole of the New York political machine, Joe Crowley, who incidentally was almost certainly going to be Nancy Pelosi's successor. So that is a key a key event here, a failure of the New York political machine to hold on to this seat that it regarded basically as as kind of its its own property. It's an incredible thing you can do is go back and look at um I think it's been it's been a year but but you probably can still find it. There's a Matt Stroller tweet from the night of that election where he he uh had screen caps of uh all of the donors to Joe Crowley and he said this is what uh, DSA and Justice Democrats just beat. And it's like Amazon, Walmart. Amazon, you know, Google. It's mm-hmm. all, you know, the, the Democratic Party is essentially a, a union of like liberal Soviets, each of which which represents a different multinational corporation. And they lost. And, you know, it's been very upsetting to them. And they've, tr- you know, obviously there were the attempts to downplay the significance of this. It's like a populist challenger can win it's a solid blue state of, you know, of course she was able to win, blah, blah, blah. But if that, if that really was how they felt, they would not be responding to progressive figures in the Democratic House caucus in the way that they have been. Notice also how, how quickly the script flips when it suits people who don't want to see a more populist left-wing direction in American politics, right? Ilan Omar is not from New York State. She's from, from the Midwest. One day it's, uh, well, this only works in a, in a solid blue state. Coastal middle-class people voting for this. Uh, and then it's well, hey, it's the it's these like uh, it's like these uh, it's these people in the Midwest. It's not representative of like the party as a whole. It's out of step or whatever. But jumping back to the the present here, I mean, uh, people will by now have seen. Uh, you know, I'm not sure when we're going to put this out, but last night uh, Donald Trump had a rally in North Carolina in in Greenville where uh, the crowd started chanting "Send her back," and they're referring to Ilan Omar, of course. It was only after Trump launched this racist tirade on Twitter last weekend that the Democrats, you know, had to sort of pivot to nominally defending their own members against this racist right wing president. And, you know, it's incredible. Um, I I wrote a piece today for Jacobin, which people can read, called The Democratic Party is a Contradiction. In the process of writing it, I uh, I was looking through the resolution that the Democrats put through the House condemning the the tweets. Mm. And amazingly, it invokes Ronald Reagan, okay? It invokes Ronald Reagan as a beacon of tolerance. And there's a Democratic uh, spokesperson quoted in the Time Magazine uh, article about it, which basically says that, uh, 
They were trying to shame the Republicans into voting against Ronald Reagan. So they're doing that West Wing thing of like playing chess and being like, haha, we've got you. And of course, it didn't make any difference. And uh, by last night, Trump was taking it still further to the point of you know, incitement against, you know, this young member of the House. The Democrats were much more forceful condemning Ilan Omar's alleged anti-Semitism. Yeah. Not at all anti-Semitism than they were this racist attack against her. Pelosi today was asked uh, about the chance at the rally yesterday, and she said, we condemned the president's comments the other day. That's our statement. She said that to reporters. That's So, you know, incredibly, I hadn't even seen that. I wish I had, but... um. Another thing that I encountered was uh, Pelosi actually walked back her censure of Trump. You know, she clarified yesterday that she wasn't calling Donald Trump a racist. She was calling his words racist. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. I mean, the 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 language, I mean, the the Democratic leadership is basically immune to using the language of actual opposition. I can't remember who said it, but somebody on Twitter remarked that their attitude seems like more like that of a junior coalition partner. I've heard a lot of people say some variation on they regard people like AOC and Ilan Omar as actual enemies. Trump is bad, but he's part of the job and he's a useful foil if you want to raise mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. But AOC and Ilan Omar are an, act, are an actual existential threat to them. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's true. And that's kind of what I was getting at in my latest Jacobin piece. The Democratic Party... You know, there's a lot of things that obscure a very simple truth, which is the Democratic Party is a contradiction. It's not a party that would exist in a different electoral system. It's only because of the dysfunction and the absurdity of the American party system, this kind of entrenched duopoly, where the parties aren't so much parties as they are arms of the state, that you know the Democratic Party would exist in the form that it exists today. So it's a contradiction in that sense, but it's a contradiction in another sense which I think is ultimately more important. In the 1990s, during the Clintonite revolution, you know, there's a very good piece people should read by Lily Geismer, um, which was a, in a Jacobin print issue some time ago. It's called The Tari Democrats. And it makes a very good point that, you know, it's often said that in the 90s, the Democrats abandoned class politics. And of course, that's true in the sense that that's meant by people who say that. But it's it's strictly, it's not true because they didn't really abandon class politics, they just adopted the politics of a different class, which was the professional managerial class, and they abandoned working class politics. So the Democratic Party, you're generalizing a bit here, but since the 1990s, it's increasingly become a, a party that is driven by the money and the interests and the ideology of white collar professionals, which is based you know, heavily you know, in Silicon Valley and Wall Street, uh, which demographically is very different from the way it used to look. The makeup of its members has changed very much. You know, there's much more like law, business, finance, like much more kind of petit bourgeoisie type backgrounds, middle managers, professionals, that kind of thing. All of it, of course, undergirded by a campaign finance system in which, you know, as we alluded to before, huge amounts of money from corporate America are just being pumped into the Democratic Party all the time. And yet, uh, it's not as if the Democratic voting base as a whole really reflects this, right? Who votes for the Democratic Party? Well, it is uh, professional managerial class people, like I just said, but it's also uh, lots and lots of working class people. Donald Trump, contrary to what you may have read, actually lost the working class vote. If you take the working class as a whole, of course, if you adjust for race, uh, you know, there's another story uh, to be told there. But the fact is that, you know, low income people and including many working class white people still vote for the Democratic Party. Crucial to Barack Obama's coalition were those very voters. 
And in addition, I mean, and it's related to the same thing, you, you also have, apart from just the voters, you also have the party activists. The activists, you know, do tend to be committed. I mean, they at least are somewhat programmatic. You know, they have an actual agenda. Some of them are people that basically have a kind of social democratic politics. You know, even the more kind of uh, tepid liberals among them are, are probably significantly to the left of where, you know, Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer is. So there's a there's a, a real contradiction here. And it all actually, I mean, now I'm just cribbing from my own article, but it all serves the leadership of the Democrats pretty well because the scheme is actually pretty good branding-wise. You know, you, you can be a party of, of business, but you can have this kind of social justice foil. As long as your base doesn't get too restless, it's not really a problem. What are they going to do, vote Republican? Well, exactly. I mean, and this really was the logic when, you know, Bill Clinton was trying to create this new version of the Democratic Party. Um, and by the way, incidentally, I mean, I think that Part of the reason the Hillary Clinton campaign was so ineffective is because it was actually trying to consolidate, you know, the, the project that, that Bill Clinton started, which was completing the transformation of the Democratic Party into a party entirely of kind of the white collar, you know, like Silicon Valley, Wall Street. It's why they were so obsessed with chasing rich suburban voters, Republican voters. It's why in, in, the, in spite of there being this populist insurgency by Bernie Sanders, and, and not getting almost half of the vote in the Democratic primaries, did they run to the left at all or even tack there superficially? No, they ran to the right. They ran as, we're the, we're the tribunes of the American political establishment. We represent the, the good Republicans, you know? And they did that, uh, you know, to bring up again that Chuck Schumer quote that I can't get enough of, for every working class vote we lose in the Midwest, we're gonna gain three in the Philadelphia suburbs. One of the things that Hillary Clinton has often said since her defeat was, well, I won the states that are on the move. That's inc I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. You could not find a better summation of like the complacency, but also the class politics, and the, the smugness, and the yeah. smugness of yeah. the of the Democratic Party than than that. There's no resolution here. This is not a coalition. I mean, coalitions involve kind of a give and take. Um, this is an almost entirely one sided dynamic. The only thing the activists really lend to the leadership of the party is this kind of veneer of, of social justice. That makes the party useful for other reasons. I'm forgetting which piece in The Intercept it was. I remember seeing it observed once. Uh, it might have been Lee Fong that wrote this, that, you know, in some ways, Democratic, you know, lobby groups and interest groups are more useful for corporate America because they kind of give you an in on the opposition. Everybody knows the Republican Party serves corporate interests. The Democratic Party kind of pretends that it doesn't. So if you're like a, you know, lecherous, soulless corporate bureaucracy and you want to have a foothold in Washington, it's better if it has a sheen of social justice attached to it. And you can kind of tell people that work in social justice nonprofits or unions or activists, other activist groups that, you know, hey, we're doing the best we can. We're, we're on your side as we take money from Amazon and Google and refuse to campaign for any of the things you care about. Putting aside the Trump rally, which is obviously really upsetting and horrible, but it's obviously upsetting and horrible. When you see the sort of coordinated campaign that the Democratic leadership was doing on the weekend against these four Congresswomen, it's hard not to feel a little hopeless and a little despairing. And I, I try to take comfort in the fact that, you know, not only has someone like AOC shifted the boundaries of the conversation enormously just in the year that she's been a national figure, but much more so than Barack Obama did in his decade oh, yeah. of being a national figure, <laughs> decade plus. Yeah. And, and she has shifted the terms of the debate enormously just with the limited amount of power that she has. My Twitter feed over the last year, whenever there's been one of these squabbles between her and Nancy Pelosi, 
I see a lot of people saying, I don't get it. Why would the Democratic Party not be excited about this person who is so charismatic and has such good values and is such an inspirational story, this this bartender who came out of nowhere and, and conquered? Like, they don't understand that. And, and now, over the last weekend, they're starting to understand that something is up. They're right. starting to understand that Nancy Pelosi is not the hand clap queen that they thought she's she not was. a 24 dimensional chess player who shares the the goals of the progressive left but it's more is smarter about you know pursuing them or something yeah. like that she's not even good at politics she's not even good at the thing that she's supposed to be good at which is like keeping her caucus in line and the normies are starting to regard her as an enemy and <laughs> i hope that that's a good development i mean i don't know what might happen is the kamala harris becomes president and everybody like goes to sleep again well uh you know if people want a further lesson in in democratic party politics look no further than how the various presidential candidates where they sided in this dispute because harris was uh not on shall we say the right side she was on the nancy pelosi side of course you know everybody sort of pivoted when trump turned his guns on people but pay very close attention to which side people fall on when the attacks are coming from the democratic leadership it will tell you a great deal about where people's politics actually are and also if they were to become president how they would govern we can't get health insurance Fire insurance, life insurance. Why haven't you come out for Senate Bill 2720? Well, because you, you haven't really contributed any money to my campaign, have you? Uh, you know, last week on the podcast, we talked a little bit about Marcos, what's his name, of the Daily Cost and the, the Netroots phenomenon. They've been in the news a bit this week, actually. Sh- shall we follow up that discussion a bit? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought this up. And actually, this is this pairs perfectly um, with what I was saying before about the Democratic Party. For those of you who may have heard the recent Chapo Trap House episode where they went to Netroots Nation, one of my favorite observations in that was that, you know, at a conference like this, the liturgy of activism is all around you, right? All these people, you know, all these speeches where people are saying things that are basically good. There's a lot of good intentions. For example, they recount some billionaire whose name I've already forgotten, really doesn't matter, who's talking about how poverty is bad and we have to get rid of it, right? Something which anybody who has an iota of compassion in their hearts can probably get on board with. I disagree. I think we should monetize poverty, actually. (laughs) I think there are opportunities Well, that's in the session next door. Um... But so you have all these good causes, and yet you're also bombarded with ads for insurance companies and, and things like that. I did look up the Netroots Nation sponsors, and it's largely, you know, unions and Planned Parenthood and various other Democratic constituencies and things. It's mostly fine. But the account that Chapa Trapas gives us in that episode, I think, is very instructive and very much in line with what I've seen at, you know, kind of similar similar gatherings, where you have kind of on the one hand, you know, yeah, this liturgy of activism, and then on the other, it's like, you know, brought to you by, you know, Lockheed Martin or whatever. That might <laughs> yeah. be a bit of an exaggeration for Net, Netroots Nation. But so, yeah, Netroots Nation was in the news. And I just want to read a few sentences from a piece published by Politico yesterday. And if you haven't heard our last episode, uh, you know, you may not know what we're talking about. We talked about a documentary about uh, the brand new hot phenomenon of blogging, which mostly focused on Marcos, what's his Marcos name? Marcos Melitzis. Melitzis yeah. from The Daily Cost. So it was a film that was just in awe of, you know, blogging. These people, they're online. They're on the World Wide Web. And they... They don't even need an editor. Yeah. <laughs> and it centered, you know, heavily around this kind of campaign that, that Marcos ran. It was a primary challenge to Joe Lieberman, uh, ultimately successful with this, you know, kind of generic business Democrat, Ned Lamont, who they sort of 
you know, they sock puppeted him into being against the Iraq war um, <laughs> while, you know, kind of also being like, but Afghanistan is good. Uh, but he ended up beating Lieberman, although, of course, then losing in the general when when Lieberman ran as an independent and won pretty handily. Fucking king. Awesome. <laughs> and then and then went on to support John McCain two years later. Yeah. Uh, nearly got, got named as his running mate. You know what Lieberman owns. <laughs> <laughs> but so th- this really was, you know, people that were not around then or, or who haven't seen this, uh, this brilliant feature film that we watched may not remember that this kind of blogging, this kind of activist blogging was... Really, this was supposed to be the hot new thing if you were like a, you know, a firebrand lib in the, in the heady days of Firedog Lake and the Daily Coast. Because the whole media ecosystem is against us. Rush Limbaugh rules the airwaves. Rupert Murdoch rules TV, uh-huh. you know. People want to read. We quoted from a, a great article by Dan O'Sullivan in Jacobin. So if you just search Dan O'Sullivan, Jacobin, the Daily Coast, you can you can read that. Because there there were, believe it or not, a lot of problems with this. But here we are in 2019, and would you believe it, the net roots has withered. I'm just going to read you a couple paragraphs from uh, this piece in Politico. Twelve years ago, progressive political bloggers were so influential that nearly every 2008 Democratic presidential candidate attended the Yearly Coast Convention, a gathering of liberal online activists named after Marcos Melitza's popular Daily Coast website. This year, that same event, now called Netroots Nation, attracted a measly four of the 24 Democratic candidates. Only one of them, Elizabeth Warren, even polls in double digits. <laughs> Rather than attend the event, the Bernie Sanders campaign engaged in a Twitter spat with Melitzas. What happened? Not only that long ago, liberal bloggers had genuine achievements to point to. Okay, citation needed there. I might skip ahead. Um, Ned Lamont. Yeah, so, so uh, you know, believe it or not, but Will and I are not perfect, and sometimes we forget to mention things uh, in these in these magisterial takedowns of various liberal sacred cows. But we forgot to mention, I think, that Lieberman actually ended up winning. Ned Lamont's primary challenge ultimately came to moot. But this Politico article actually alerted me to some uh, further developments in, in the Ned Lamont extended universe, um, <laughs> which which I think I think we would be uh, in dereliction of duty if we didn't recount them. So remember, progressive b- blogging, Marcos Melitos, the Daily Coast, all this stuff. This was the big populist, quote unquote, left wing insurgency in the Democratic Party in the early and mid 2000s. And this was their big achievement. They peaked with like the Howard Dean campaign. Dean, of course, later going on to be like a pharma lobbyist. And this uh, Ned Lamont, uh, this primary challenge was one of the big victories that they supposedly had. Here's what happened next. Only a year before the 2007 yearly cost, Ned Lamont, a wealthy but little known Connecticut businessman, beat Joe Lieberman, the incumbent and a former vice presidential nominee of the Democratic Party, in a U.S. Senate primary by embracing the blogosphere, that's in quotation marks, uh, a ridiculous word for a not-so-ridiculous force. Progressive online activists who could drive discourse, cultivate small donors, and legitimize outside politicians. Lamont made common cause with bloggers to punish Lieberman for his vote to authorize the Iraq War. Thirteen years later, now Governor Lamont has endorsed the only presidential candidate who cast the same vote, Joe Biden. <laughs> so that's what your populist insurgency gets you. Lamont did end up becoming governor of Connecticut, and he endorsed Joe Biden, who... Whose vote for the Iraq Joe Biden, by the way, not just a vote for the Iraq War, but like Lieberman, one of its leading boosters. So these are the fruits of you know mid two thousands liberalism for you. The writer of this piece is upset with the folks from Chapo Trap House because uh, they have a go at Melitzas in their book. Um, but I think this is pretty spot on. So this is uh, in the article quoting from Chapo Trap House and, and their book. 
Once Obama took office, Coase went soft, wrote the Chapo Trapos podcasters in their best-selling book, based on his negativity towards Sanders in 2016. The Chapo gang dismissed the net roots as, quote, a league of pathetic, repulsive morons who mastered a technology every child knows how to use and piloted journalism into a newer, newer more idiotic frontier of toxic hackery. Um, and, then, and then the political writer says, one person's toxic hackery is another person's call for revolution. I'll just say again, citation needed there. I think uh, the Chapo book is exactly right. But anyway, would you, would you believe that the hip thing in liberal politics from 2005 has run out of gas? Blogging on the World Wide Web, it turns out, is not the revolutionary force that journalists thought it was at uh, one time. And all the populist energy in the Democratic Party or anywhere kind of in the vicinity of it is basically somewhere else. I mean, as I understand it, uh, Elizabeth Warren was fairly w warmly received at the conference, as was Ilan Omar and a few other progressive lawmakers. The actual energy in the Democratic Party right now, and I mean, honestly, probably back in 2005 when Melitzis and others were astroturfing their way to, a, to successful media careers, the, the actual energy is, is always on the uh, populist left. You know, that was probably true then as it is now. If you think a drama can't be funny. You know, I watched you very closely. You didn't screw up once. If you think a comedy can't move you. Sometimes there's so much beauty in the world. I feel like I can't take it. Look closer. I rule. Critics are calling American Beauty a flat-out masterpiece. The best movie of the year. Very few movies are genuinely unforgettable. This is one of them. That's how things really are. American Beauty rated R. Now playing in select cities. Coming soon to a theater near you. Luke, what is beauty to you? Because, you know, I, I'm looking around your apartment now, and yeah, like, you're doing okay. You got a nice uh, couch there. Uh, you've got this nifty cord that connects the microphone into the laptop. You've got all these signifiers of success, but at the end of the day, it's all just stuff. To me, beauty is... is you find the beauty in nature. The, the beauty is the sun as it illuminates a lover's thigh. Beauty is... A leaf as it falls from a tree. A bag blowing in the wind, perchance. And you know, what, what's beautiful about that example, beauty is a dead bird on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, Things that people would, may not even consider beautiful. Beauty is... Things is, that may not be considered quote-unquote normal. Beauty is when you, when you look out your window with your camera and you see Kevin Spacey <laughs> lifting weights <laughs> in the other window and you just, you just film him. Okay, folks, this one was a long time coming. Uh, and let me tell you, just like when we did our Dark Knight Rises episode, the hour is getting rather late. When we watch real movies, they tend to be longer, I'm afraid. Uh-huh, although to call this one a real movie, well, we'll get to uh, that. Academy Award winner, Best Picture. All right, so, I mean, God, how do, we even, how do we even give you a background for this movie? Folks, it's the 1990s. Everything seems great. American capitalism is booming. People who marched against the war in Vietnam have settled into comfortable suburban existences. But is everything really as okay as it seems? Is there still beauty in the world? These are the extremely profound questions asked by the 1999 Academy Award winner, American Beauty, which is what we watched this evening. The protagonist of the film, portrayed People by... People know what American Beauty is about. Kevin Spacey. He has a high-paying job. He has the perfect wife, the perfect daughter, the, the perfect life. But Ugh. he is empty inside. He has dinner in artfully composed, symmetrical shots in which nothing emotional is An exchanged. elegant existence, but a Spartan mise-en-scene. 9-11 uh, is two years away. <laughs> 
the financial crisis is nine years away. You know, you know what I like about this movie is it's so hacky that even though it was made before anyone knew 9-11 was going to happen, it feels like a movie that someone would make to be like, remember what America was like before 9-11? Just... Except after 9-11, uh, we got real problems. <laughs> Uh, well, actually, I guess I guess real problems existed at this time. Of course, the poor were with us, um, but I guess I guess people just didn't think. Not about for that these much. people. This is what the culture was like turning over in its in its collective brain. Is suburbia really as great as it seems? Maybe not, but maybe actually it is. The class politics of this movie are funny to me because you know we watch this movie now and it's like, okay, Kevin Spacey, what's what's your problem? You got a this gigantic house. Every, everything looks fine. But you know that the people who made this movie are filthy rich, fucking coastal assholes. It's Steven Spielberg's company. Sam Mendes is directing. And they think that they're talking down to the real America by doing a movie yeah. about like upper middle class people in a white suburb. Yeah, it's like, it's like you know, you folks, you folks out there in, in the Midwest... You're actually really shallow. Where the hell was this movie set? Where was it supposed to be? Oh, God, it could be any. It's any town USA. And, you know, at first glance, it looks like a real uh, white picket fence neighborhood. So uh, Kevin Spacey's wife, portrayed by Annette Benning, is the second most successful real estate agent in town. And she she craves to be the most successful. She works very hard. She's extremely career focused to the exclusion of everything else in her life. Uh, it is inferred that she was once a fun, cool girl, but now she has left all that behind for a life of consumerism and material success. The basic dynamic of the film is that the the two main adult characters are people who, you know, they used to be fun and now they've settled into this drab suburban equilibrium. You know, they have everything and yet they're not happy. And the same is the case with their children who, you know, have grown up with material advantages their parents could have scarcely imagined. And they're not happy either. They're a little more clear-eyed about how fucked up the normalcy is. But they can appreciate uh, the beauty in the world. They can see the beauty in the quotidian. And so in a way, they're more perceptive than the adults. And this extremely hackneyed uh, dynamic is basically what sustains the whole over more than two hour run of this movie. Yeah, so Kevin Spacey and Annette Benning have a daughter played by Thora Birch, who's just a, a little a little off kilter, a little weird, a little unhappy. And her, she eats her Oreos with peanut butter. Her she's a bit goth, and her best friend, played by Mina Suvari, is the glamorous, uh, sexually precocious, or is she cheerleader? Classmate. Yeah, cheerleader. And the neighbor kid, played by a actor, a, a Toby Maguire lookalike, a man whose name escapes, who me looks about thirty five. Yeah, he is the Heath Ledger Joker of the film. <laughs> uh, he films things. Yeah, and what's so funny? But what was the thing you said when we were about ten minutes in, where you're like. This film is from 1999, but it feels older than like than a movie made like a it, century. It feels like before. older than The Phantom Carriage <laughs> yeah. or like Charlie Chaplin's The Kid or Modern Times or something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is a good example because this character, his his big thing is that he films thing with, things with a camera, and this is supposed to be a mark of eccentricity. And it's like 
everyone films things now. Every teen and preteen has a fucking camera. He has a room like a, a James Spader in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, you know, <laughs> covered in in videos. And his father, of course... He's just a Vine star before he could put all yeah. that shit on the cloud. He yeah. would in Ten years later, he would have just been a dark Vine star. Now, like, you know, every kid five years younger than him is posting videos of bags twirling in the wind and <laughs> saying, I see beauty everywhere. <laughs> I think I might become a photographer. <laughs> and uh, his dad is played by Chris Cooper, and his mom is played by Allison Janney. Chris Cooper is the embodiment of toxic heterosexual patriarchy. He's a military guy. He is such a military guy that he, when we meet him, he is watching a Ronald Reagan movie on TV. And he always introduces himself to people in the neighborhood, including the gay couple that lives two doors down, one of whom is played by Scott Bakula, who he always introduces himself as like, Colonel something something from the Marines. And this guy is, when he finds out that couple next door is gay he's really he's not happy it. about it he is vociferously westboro baptist church level homophobic uh, i mean gosh you know doth he protest too much could could there be uh some some cheap irony that comes a little uh, later perhaps well maybe we'll find out um the the movie's take on masculinity is really frustrating because it tries to have it both ways the kevin spacey character the movie, which wants us to be in sympathy with him, heavily hints that his existential crisis has to do with his patriarchal authority having been taken away. And this is such a popular idea in the 90s, yeah. like Iron John so and there's, that shit. There's a scene where he's having dinner with his family later, and he's just quit his ghastly office job or whatever. And even though he's gotten money from quitting uh, because he's you know, threaten them with a lawsuit or something. His wife now complains that she's the sole breadwinner. Mm -hmm. um, and he gets angry and he throws the, the dinner plate away and he says, never interrupt me, woman. So the movie is trying to kind of pitch this to us, I think, in a somewhat sympathetic light and say there's a crisis of American masculinity and you can see the damage it's wrought in this Kevin Spacey character because he has no meaning left. But then on the other side, it gives you this overtly toxic patriarchal figure and it's like mm. but but you can also take this too far and it's mm. like which is it you can't have it both ways that's why you got to seek out a sensible middle ground a, a third way I if mean, you will that, <laughs> that is why this could not be a more 1990s film is because everything is ultimately this is a film which is about various pe people flirting with transgression and then settling on balance. It's like a psychological thriller for centrists. Yeah, so Kevin Spacey quits his job and he decides he's going to become a gentleman of leisure. He <laughs> buys a little toy car, a motorized car that he drives. He smokes weed. Could you imagine such a thing with he, the neighbor boy? He buys, a, he buys a Mustang. By the way, I like how... Uh, all these signifiers of like that are supposed to this movie is very pretentious and it thinks these are all so it's putting all these things in our faces as signifiers of like the crisis of the american male it's like these are just generic like divorced dad in crisis moves <laughs> yeah. uh, in any generation and so he goes around to his wife's social functions acting like rodney dangerfield in caddyshack <laughs> just quipping and making jokes and just being an asshole frankly being a rude right. piece of shit and his decision to withdraw from society, there are no politics behind no. it. No. He just feels stifled. And he reverts to he reverts to kind of being a teenager by getting a job at a fast food joint. Not in management, but as like a burger flipping guy. And you know, my advice to the Kevin Spacey character is 
there's nothing stopping you from being interested. Take up a hobby, dude. Yeah, like, yeah, you work nine to five. And after that, maybe pick up a goddamn book. Maybe learn calligraphy. <laughs> learn how to paint. You know, do do something and and then you'll you'll be a man with an inner life. <laughs> and, you know, we haven't even gotten to one of the main things of the movie, which is the fact that Kevin Spacey falls in love with his daughter's friend, Mina Suvari. Or falls in lust. In any falls way. in lust. Yeah. yeah, of course. She becomes an object of erotic obsession for him. Of course, the defining image of the film is the rose petals in the bathtub and right. all that. Um, and so he uh, decides to work out and really get in shape in the hopes of winning her heart. What, what would you say the, the attitude is? Because he's sort of regarded, the movie regards him as a little bit pathetic here, but it's also sort of, I would say, sympathetic to his lust. I think the movie's kind of trying to have it both ways. Again, I don't think it's really coherent in its presentation of this. It's particularly given how that arc ends because oh the the end of the movie and i mean i feel like we can't actually continue talking about the movie unless we just say what the end is and we'll assume everyone listening you've had 20 years to watch if you this. haven't seen american beauty we're gonna we're gonna spoil it for you but the end of the movie and this is why it's the quintessential 90s movie the end of the movie is just he realizes that you know uh he was in kansas all along it turns out <laughs> suburbia is great he just bangs the red shoes together and it turns out that he dies uh looking at a picture of his family and just thinking Oh, wow, it's actually great. And what is the cause of this revelation uh, that he decides not to go ahead and pursue uh, the Mina Suvari character? Yeah, he's finally about to have sex with Mina Suvari. He gets her naked and everything. So you see her naked, and she reveals that far from being sexually precocious, she's actually a virgin. And he has a crisis of conscience at this moment, and he realizes, you know what, this is wrong. And for the remaining minutes of the film, Kevin Spacey may as well have a halo over his head. Like, the movie treats him so reverently after this. He evolves into a higher plane of being by virtue of not having committed a statutory sex offense. So he, he's no longer quipping. He's making her food and he's giving her life advice. He's a sainted figure having resisted temptation. And then, uh, you know, in the last minutes of his life, uh, you know, the neighbor from across the road, the... Uh... The toxic patriarch comes over and uh, turns out that uh, well, he he doth protest too much. <laughs> yeah, there, there, maybe there was a secret lurking behind yeah, that who, facade. Who knows what it could have been? But anyway, he embarrasses himself and he comes back and he shoots Kevin Spacey in the head. But for those few minutes, Kevin Spacey is just uh, completely serene, realizing that actually his normy hetero patriarchal nuclear yeah. family was was yeah. kansas all along there's more to life than lusting after a teenager and God. uh and in fact yeah sub suburbia is fine but as long as you stop to smell the roses as long as you don't lose sight of the fact that there's beauty in the world like like the the trees in springtime or a bag in the wind or grandma's hands i mean seriously grandma's hands he says that <laughs> As, that, if, that as the, if he's a ninth grade photography that was, student. That was a part of the movie where if you just if if it just cut to the Mastercard logo, it, it would yeah, have been, it yeah. worked perfectly. And as uh, as Kevin Spacey is lying there dead, his blood all over the pristine white of their you know marble kitchen, the Tobey Maguire lookalike comes in, and he doesn't he doesn't actually film it, but there's a good thirty second shot where he's just looking at he's just looking at Kevin Spacey's face, and rather than being horrified horrified or... at the at the sight of this body that this guy who's just been shot in the head 
he just he just looks at it and he's like, wow, there's beauty in the world because he's a little quirky. You know, there are ways, I would say, to make this story good. If it were more of a black comedy, if it were not so pretentious, you know, there's a scene in the movie. Uh, I mean, we haven't really talked about the Annette Benning character and what a, you know, hideous, like sexist uh, creation it is. Yeah. The film, the film <laughs> treats his needs to transgress against the family as, I think, more legitimate than hers. Yeah. Like, it's, it's somehow, that like, she's just doing infidelity, but because she ends up hooking up with the, the number one real estate agent, uh, who's a total snake oil salesman. But that's just treated as, like, a disruption of the family, whereas Kevin Spacey's arc is much more about, like, he's soul-searching, you know? Yeah. He's I mean, on the road to Damascus. God forbid she'd just be, like, good at her job and be a professional and want to be good at it. <laughs> What's much more honorable is just to be an asshole who quits your job for no reason and then takes a job at fast food yeah to satisfy your own ego and at the end of the movie she's just she's sad that her husband's dead too even the, and the movie would honestly be better if it actually took its own premises to their logical conclusions which is like actually she's relieved she might be upset that her husband's dead but now on some level yeah. she's relieved because she's not going to be locked into this oppressive institution anymore yeah you know i mean you see her having sex with the real estate agent and she actually seems happy for a change this is the sort of movie where kevin spacey admonishes his wife don't you see this is all just stuff oh man that monologue was incredible i think both of us spontaneously laughed out loud when that happened it was like a monologue that in your 10th grade drama class you would have performed and thought was extremely profound or how about the scene where kevin spacey discovers the affair and then you know she's with the other real estate guy and he says I think we, we should cool it for a little while. I'm going through an expensive divorce. And of course, to be successful, you must project success. He it's, says that a number of times. And that's the movie. The movie just cannot stop beating you over the head with this premise that's like, things that look perfect. I mean, but like, what if they're not actually? I love a what movie. What if it's all just an artifice? A movie that has no subtext. That's that's <laughs> my kind of movie. I, folks, if you want to see like, like an actually kind of good version of this, uh, watch... The Heartbreak Kid, the original Elaine May movie from the early 1970s, which is like a much more sort of black comic version of a premise like this. If Kevin Spacey lusting after a teenager and, you know, quitting his job with no sort of backup plan, with no sort of, with no, with no politics, no agenda, if that were treated as a black comedy premise and he was just this shallow idiot, that would be very funny. Honestly, like a movie that is not quite as Oscar baity as this, but which we've actually done on the show also not a particularly good movie but which actually deals with a lot of these themes much better is donnie darko yeah actually it is i, I know we had some harsh words for it at the time but it is infinitely better it's a than this better movie than yeah this. american beauty i i think its reputation has plummeted since it came out for a lot of factors including the presence of kevin spacey it's considered a little problematic these days uh, there was an article in the September-October 2018 issue of Film Comment, which unfortunately is not online, but it's called Problematic by Nick Davis. And it's talking about, he teaches a university course about the films of 1999. He writes about being anxious about the response that American Beauty would get from the students, that you hear so much, especially from sort of conservative dad columnists about how these uh, uh, triggered millennials on campuses won't engage with problematic material. And uh, Nick Davis, the author of this piece, writes, 
Ultimately, I had moved American Beauty to the midpoint of the term, paired with Fight Club as problem text, so dense with aesthetic and cultural quandaries that students would profit from a month of prior skill building in order to stage properly layered arguments using nuanced evidence from within and beyond each movie. As predicted, but to very constructive ends, American Beauty's erotic dynamics sparked divergent responses, as did reverberations of Spacey's presence. One student offered that his casting only exacerbated a disdain she harbored anyway for the film's plucky sympathy with Lester's machinations and his eventual recuperation as a chivalric empath who halts the liaison he has cultivated throughout the film. Many others, even admitting a range of personal experience with harassment and assault, confided their amazement at how the film secures identification with Lester despite the embedded and extra-textual reasons to withhold it. This disjunction motivated them to scrutinize the film's methods and understand how it had, for lack of a better word, groomed them. Some students, especially fans of House of Cards, 21, and Baby Driver, confessed newfound ambivalence in savoring the art of an actor they revered, even as they delineated their regard for his work from their view of him. Another student asked bashfully, I'm sorry, was there recent news about Kevin Spacey that I missed? That query duly reminded us that, in a way that is easier now than in 1999, given proliferating media platforms, it is possible to track daily news and still pass over what others find inescapable. At the term's end, out of 13 assigned films, American Beauty scored third highest in a collective ranking of the students' favorites. Uh, the article goes on and it says a lot of other things about American Beauty and sort of the, the issues that it raised, but the thesis of the article is far from the idea that students on campuses are unwilling or, or closed-minded or unable to engage with difficult subject matter or problematic texts. They're happy to engage with it as long as you don't have the exact same conversations you had about it in 1999. Right. I mean, think about the issues that were raised there. When this movie came out, it was rapturously received. Mm -hmm. And it's so strange that the critical reception at the time didn't focus on the things that... Uh, well, all the things that we've pointed out that feel very obvious. Yeah. And that those students instantly recognize. Exactly. The the sexism, the weird sort of ephebophilic yeah. uh, subplot. Yeah. I remember hearing the feminist critic Molly Haskell say on, a pod, on I think, a film comment podcast, people always say, I can't watch uh, the Woody Allen movies the same way again. And she thinks, why do you have to watch them the same way again? Mm -hmm. these texts are evolving they don't live in a vacuum they're always changing depending on what the cultural context is and i think a lot of the people who are you know are so worried about uh, quote-unquote triggered millennials are just unwilling to engage themselves in sort of a shifting conversation right there are these certain kind of shibboleths of culture that they hold up and they they actually can't broker criticism or like any kind of critical engagement with them yeah they're the reactionary ones right mm -hmm. I guess I could be pretty pissed off about what happened to me, but it's hard to stay mad when there's so much beauty in the world. Sometimes I feel like I'm seeing it all at once, and it's too much. My heart fills up like a balloon that's about to burst. And then I remember to relax and stop trying to hold on to it. And then it flows through me like rain and I can't feel anything but gratitude for every single moment of my stupid little life. You have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm sure. But don't worry. You will someday.
Anyway, what American Beauty teaches us is it, it's okay to experiment with transgression, but at the end of the day, the system works, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you can't destroy the system because what are you going to have? You're going to be uh, working at a fast food place. You're going to be playing with a toy car. But what you can do is fix the system. You can uh, stop and smell the roses. You can make sure that your office chair fix it the right way so that you're not your posture is a little better. And frankly, I think there are a lot of people in some of our elected representatives, let's say, um, you know, I don't want to name any names. Some people who, you know, they have their little following online. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything in the real world. But as this movie teaches us, it's very dangerous, very perilous to sail out into the murky waters of populism, flirtations with the utopian idea that things might be made even marginally better. Mm -hmm. It's also a film with which in a very meta way teaches us that it's dangerous to preoccupy oneself with anything but the most quotidian concerns of bland suburban voters. Uh, but we know who the bad people are, and they're Chris Cooper, <laughs> and they vote Republican. <laughs> you don't want to be Chris Cooper. Unite Blue, everybody. Now watch this guy. He just turned 40, but he digs a team. Loves to shower, never gets clean. The guy next door is a closeted marine. Ah, uh, that's why this beauty is a champ. There's always roses all over the floor. He gets his reefer from that nutcase kid next door. His wife's adulterant and looking for more uh, that's why this beauty is a champ he's now a free fresh high hamburger selling cat he's lifting weights Ooh, he's throwing plates she fled he's dead it ain't a feel good but boy is it great uh, that's why this movie could win eight center stage this guy's had work done he never shows his age 